Greetings from Clayton Studios just outside St. Louis, Missouri. This is Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. I'm Brian Reardon, your host. With me is Marianne Steiner. Hi, Marianne. Good morning, Brian. And as we do, Marianne, uh, about every other episode, we take a deeper look into an issue of health progress. This issue of health progress uh, that we're going to be talking about is on food and water. And the reason we did food and water, we're actually going to also do uh, a couple more issues on what are called the social determinants of health. So to start off with, before we go around and introduce our three guests that are authors for this current issue, can you tell us a little bit about the um, makeup of this issue and why you decided to take three issues of health progress to look at various social determinants? Well, um, Brian, I think I think there are two answers. So the first is that social determinants of health is such a, a big issue and, you know, we needed more than one article on food, one article on transportation, one article on poverty, because they're big issues, and everybody's um, trying to attend to those, I think, with greater uh, concentration than they were before. So I think spreading it out gives people time to think and to break these down into reasonable categories. But also, because the term itself, social determined determinants is something that I'm not sure everybody understands. And so when you talk about, you know, what food means to people, what access to clean water means to people, it takes that term and makes it very real for the people that um, that we write for. And so I'm excited that we have three of the authors actually in studio with us. So let me go around and uh, introduce the three of them. First, we have Francine Blinton. Francine is a clinical nutritionist. She works with the Connecticut Mental Health Center, and she wrote, Hunger is a Health Issue in the Current Issue. Greetings, Francine. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And then we have uh, John Magnuson. He's director of the Cedar Tree Institute. Uh, It's a northern Michigan, Upper Peninsula, actually, Mm not-for-profit, that works on mental health, environmental, and religious issues. And John wrote the Mystery of Water article for HP. Welcome, John. Thank you. And then finally, we have uh, Camille Grappon. She is the system director of Global Ministries for Bon Secours Mercy Health. And Camille wrote a reflection called Encountering Hunger. Welcome. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. So let me start, Francine, with you. when we think of food, you know, it's, it's obviously food and water are f- fundamental to our, our well-being and to our health. Um, you've encountered in your article um, the issue of in- food insecurity and as a clinical nutritionist, sometimes I th- we, maybe those that work with patients don't always recognize hunger as an issue. Can you, can you share a little bit about some of the insights you shared in your article on that? Sure. Um, when you think of the term food insecurity, you tend to think hunger. And there, there's overlap, but food insecurity is a when an individual or a household doesn't have adequate food to last for their household in socially acceptable ways. Hunger is a physical sensation. So in practice, if you see a person who could be obese, and many are, food insecurity co-occurs with obesity, it may not occur to you that this person is struggling to eat food. On, and feed their family consistently, or there there could be skip meals, and it could be episodic. So screening is important in a clinical level because you, you can't go as as my manager says. I don't see how we fix this problem until you know you can talk about as a nutritionist optimizing your diet. But if you don't have food for yourself and your family consistently throughout the month, then we have to fix that first. And do you think enough clinicians are trained properly to identify either food insecurity or, or hunger? I mean, in the article you wrote about um, a clinician who maybe misdiagnosed somebody with abdominal pain when it was really a hunger issue. 
I think it's it's overlooked. I think as um, uh, the editor um, Betsy Taylor Betsy said, Taylor said that it's it's a problem that's hiding in plain sight. So if you want, and and it doesn't it's not often something that patients will bring up. But if you ask, and if you and there's a stigma and there's shame associated. So it's it, it's what I say when I screen is that I have to ask this question to everybody. Everybody and the American Pediatric Association is recommending universal screening, um, diabetes, um, Medicare, Medicaid. It, it's across the board, and every time because situations can change. So when I ask the question and we get a positive screen result, then you have to connect to community partners, and that's very important because if you screen and you have a positive result, and you have no no resources to connect them to, then you're really in no better. Uh, you're not in a better situation. So. But knowing that help is on the way, that we can connect you, I have websites and I have, and I, with days of the week that this church is offering food, fresh food, some, the food banks are not as bad as we think in some cases, especially in New Haven where I work. Um, but you need to have appropriate recommendations and referrals because the last thing you want to do is send somebody on two buses to a closed door. Right, so this place is open Monday, Wednesdays from nine to twelve. Here, you need to bring your own bags, or here you need an ID card. Here, you don't. So it's it's not just yes, you're food insecure, but now what are we going to do? And it has to get recorded in the medical records. And have we gotten better at that? I mean, when we talk, Marianne, about social determinants of health, this is sort of the heart of the matter. It's the hospitals typically are very good at um, you know in a, an acute care setting or in a physician office setting of a patient in front of them at the time and diagnosing whatever ails them, but then looking at the broader picture outside the walls of a clinical setting and working like you described with a food pantry, with a farmer's market. Have you, seen, Francine, do you think we're getting better as, as a healthcare industry in looking broader at the overall impact of people's health and their environment? I think there's more awareness now, and I think the younger, the medical students now and the nursing students, the APRNs, are they're demanding it and we're seeing this at Yale they they're demanding more in their program and so we have done workshops with them at Connecticut Mental Health Center where they're coming in and they want to see how we're doing these the Better Eaters Club which is a cooking hands-on interactive cooking not a cooking show kind of a thing right. this is here's a knife here's a cutting board some people have never chopped a red pepper in their life they didn't they didn't know that the onion rolls when you slice into it on my so you see these um, medical professionals and students, they're demanding it, and they give me hope. This generation does give me hope. Um, and it's, uh, no, it's not perfect, but it's, uh, it's, get, it's getting better, I think. I think the change is coming, as you said, not only from the next generation, but from all of those other institutions and community organizations that are affecting healthcare big institutions. I don't think the institutions themselves are moving as quickly as the forces that are saying you need to. I mean, I, I have limited experience with hospitals, but the experience I have says they're delivering weird plates of food to people who are in, in, in conditions that they shouldn't have that kind of food. You know, you don't give a 90-year-old man a salad if he doesn't have teeth. And, um, and, and you don't give a heart failure patient, you know, canned green beans with high sodium. Right. So I, I just think that the health care has a lot to learn from people who have been in sort of quieter fields slowly taking care of, of things. 
Camille, from your perspective, um, working overseas and, and primarily uh, Bon Secours Mercy is in Peru, I believe. That's right. How do you, do you see any difference or lessons maybe for how food security issues or nutrition is handled in a country like Peru versus the United States and are there any lessons um, that we can learn from overseas? Yeah, Brian, we, when we think of hunger, we have to sort of backtrack. So hunger is a consequence um, of another root cause. So when we deal in the global arena with hunger, we have to look at is it caused by climate change? Is it political repression? Uh, is it an economic gain? So I think the lessons that we can learn uh, internationally is that uh, what is the root cause and and then, then really affect it in a positive way. So, for example, in Peru, uh, the root cause of hunger might be a mining company in a community that's exploiting the water and the land and there isn't for their population to actually uh, do safe agriculture because the land is, is not, it's not uh, good for the animals to eat the grass or for the people to cultivate in that land. So I think when we, when we look at a global context or even a local context, we have to think of hunger as just um, a consequence of a, of a root cause, and when we dig deep into the root cause, will we, will we be able to find sort of the solutions embedded in that? And you mentioned water, and so I want to bring in John because this is an issue that um, you write about in Health Progress. When we look at um, water availability, and I think in, in your um, article, and, and I think in a couple of the articles, you know, talks about access to water and then having actually safe water. Um, from your perspective in the United States, do we take sort of accessible, safe water for granted, and is there cautions um, about the future of water? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, a recent book just published this year by uh, Wallace Wells called The Inhabitable, Inhabitable Earth. And in it, he says this is one of the great delusions that we live in. in in the world, which has to do with the accessibility and availability of fresh water. And he said um, one of the common phrases uh, shared among people acquainted and working with climate change is, if climate change is a shark, then water is the teeth. So, hmm. in other words, you're going to experience the consequences of climate change to this issue of the availability of clean, fresh water. And there's justice issues involved in this because if we try to commercialize, there's, a, there's, there's forces in the country and the global community that want to privatize, commercialize water. They see that will bring the true cost of water then uh, because now it's being subsidized by municipalities and governments. If people actually knew how precious this commodity is, this element, this gift of water, uh, the price would, would soar. I'm, when I grew up as a young man, I always remember jokes about one day water being more expensive than gasoline. Well, it is. If you go buy bottled water now, it's more expensive than gasoline. But the actual cost is 10 times that. But nobody knows that because it's being subsidized. So if you try to move to a privatized model of distributing water, you're going to have justice issues. I mean, the question is, ethically, is uh, water a right? Do people have the right? And we had a, a very fascinating conversation last night, um, a couple of us, about access to spiritual 
sacraments, mm -hmm. access to, to communion or Eucharist or worship. You don't buy a ticket to get there because that that is a source of renewal for people spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. You don't ask people to pay to come in. And should it be, is it actually water then? The question is, is water actually a sacrament? Because it is the essential, the essential nutrient for life on this planet. In 1972, when Apollo 17 went up, they took a picture of the Earth. It was the first picture ever taken from 18,000 mi 18, miles away, or 18,000 yeah, miles away. And it was a, of, a, of a blue planet. And so wherever we go in space now, NASA goes, they look for the blue, they, they look for the water, and there's no planets that have it. So we're looking for the water because that's what makes us so unique. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you. And um, water should not be seen as a commodity. So uh, water is a basic human right, water and food, uh, anything that would sustain life itself. So it is a human right, and there is this danger of this uh, privatization of water. So there's an intersection between economy or short-term short economic gain and long-term implications. So the further away we get from this, this essential right, uh, basic human right, the, the worse we're going to be in, in the long term. Um, you, you hit on the, the, the topic of social justice as well. And, and we really need to pause to think about a world we live in today where 1% of the entire uh, world population owns 45% of the wealth. So if we don't begin to look at our own personal mortality, that we cannot take this with us, um, and start looking at each other uh, as fellow brothers and sisters where we share the wealth and share the land and live in balance with, with the land, uh, the worst is going to be uh, generations and generations to come. There was a, a film festival that I was at in our small community in the northern Great Lakes Basin there last fall, and <clears throat> I was watching these a series of films, short films by filmmakers from around the country. They gather there because we live in such a unique, rural, but really beautiful landscape. Rock, you know, forest, uh, so there was a lot of extreme sports people there and whatever. But I suddenly realized at one of these showings, they were short films, three to five minutes, that the priest, a priest and an, and an artist or a filmmaker have something in common. Um, they have the same task, it's to help people see in new ways. And I think the religious community, the faith-based community, uh, that's one of their missions, is to help people see. It's not enough, I don't think, just to support our food banks and fight for access to water. I think it's actually, uh, like you said, the root cause is how we see, how we see the world. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's an ongoing, evolving challenge. So I wonder, John, I mean, you're a you're a Lutheran minister. Yes. You're um, you've made lots of references to science in just our mm -hmm. brief conversation so far, um, and you have, it seems to me, a sacramental connection right. to water. I hope so. But for <laughs> all of us here who are who, for, you know, luckily we are all people of faith, and um, can you can you articulate what 
we all in different ways perceive as not only the justice issue because that's faith-based as well as secular Mm -hmm. but the the um spiritual aspect that you led with in your article and um and i've heard you be very eloquent about before well i was informed uh i've been shaped my own spiritual path by working with native american communities in the pacific northwest and with the six tribes in the area that I live now in northern Michigan. Um, And uh, they have tremendous struggles uh, internally with health and economics and other other things. But there are remnants in those communities of rituals that connect us to the earth. And I've been intrigued by those. And my article happened to lead with the experience I had with the Warm Springs, Warm Springs uh, community in Eastern Oregon, where I saw my first water ceremony. And you know, I've done led liturgies around the country and in my own communities, but not like this. There, there was something about this, this consecration. Um, and I suddenly started to think that, you know, maybe water, you know, how, well, water, is this, is an eighth sacrament in the Roman Catholic tradition or the Protestant tradition that I come from? We have two sacraments, Eucharist and baptism, but I mean, water's the third sacrament or the eighth sacrament. And you know, Mary Oliver just Mary Oliver just died. She was a national poet. Many of us probably are aware of her. And there's a poem that I use from her a lot of just a couple lines or a line, and she said um, it's called "In the Pines." The 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 poem's name, but her last line is, do not hurry, bow often. So, you know, to me, <laughs> part of the problem, we had that talk last night, very very briefly, uh, Camille, about the, the hoarding or the fear. This has to do about seeing now, the spiritual aspect of seeing, that people are are paralyzed by fear, and so they hoard. There's not enough to go around. No. We must protect what we have. And that's essentially a spiritual issue. I agree. What world are you living in? And how sm- is are we living in a world of abundance, potentially, or is it just limited resources? So you've got a guy like yeah. Benzo, is it Benzos, uh, who wants to send a Bezos. million... Yeah, Bezos wants to send a million people to another planet. Was it Elon Musk? I don't know. Anyway, one of, the, yeah. one of, those, one of those tech entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> so, do we take care of our home here? Is that really, or do we, are we really fantasizing about leaving, abandoning the planet? No. So, I want to go back to oh. ritual. Yes. Um, and I think that some of the things Francine talked about have to do with the rituals of preparing food and knowing food and um, appreciating food. Yeah, that's appreciating what, that's what I was food. About so, I, so I was just going to tell this funny story. My daughter had a friend years ago when they were young, and I had been invited to a fancy dinner party and I couldn't go, but I was supposed to bring something. So we went to this house and it was a really nice house and the table was beautifully laid because this woman took great pride in that and who knew what the food was going to be. I was there to drop something off. But my daughter and her friend walked through it with me. 
And we were all impressed, you know, we don't. But the young lady who came with us, we got in the car and I said, wow, wasn't that something? And she said, we don't even have a kitchen table, Mm. which stunned me. And you've said things like that in your article about people who can't, I remember the man who was quite heavy who couldn't get down on the floor to eat food, so he would basically go without, right? Or eat things he could eat while he was standing. Well, his son would come every other weekend, and he would always go out. And he was struggling. He wasn't eligible for SNAP benefits because he he worked, but he was a very low earner. But he would always go out, and I had seen him in our cooking classes enjoy the foods we were making. He had to take breaks because he was large, very large, almost 500 pounds. But when he was finished, and the look on his face, he once said, I can't believe something without meat could taste this good. And we don't do all vegetarian <laughs> cooking, but to, to cook on $4 a day, you have to use less meat and, and more beans and such. But I, he didn't cook for his son, and I was curious in private sessions why you don't do that. I saw how much you, you did it. You, you were good at it, and you enjoyed it, and that's self-care. And he said... I don't have a table. And I said, what about a coffee table? No. I have a nightstand, though, he said. And I'm imagining this large man, how are you going to, you and your son, sharing a meal so they go out? And, and those are the things, when you talk about social determinants of health, I know it's a, it's a worn-out word, but I, I prefer to think of it as the social context. So how does this person live? And I bet you, if I went into all of my patients' homes, I would be very surprised at not just what was there, but what wasn't there. And when you, it's not enough to give someone a recipe. I used to do that. Here's a recipe for gazpacho. Yeah, you don't have to cook to make gazpacho. They don't have a cutting board. They don't have a knife. One person didn't, he had a skillet, but he didn't have a plate. They don't have Tupperware, but they want to go buy the Tupperware because they see how we wrap things up after our cooking classes. But I don't want them to buy Tupperware if they don't have food. And sometimes I have translators if there's someone who's not speaking English as a pri- as their first language, and I'll hear the translators say, "You you should go buy the Tupperware or a Nutribullet," and I'll say, "No, mm-hmm. no, that's not what I said. Repeat back to me in English what I just said. I want you to go buy an apple, and I want you to buy beans and rice and pasta, and establishing a pantry." So it's we're getting there. It's there's so much that we don't know when a person leaves. You don't know. I had a, a woman who she was barely ma- able to manage to put food on the table for her and her sister, but she didn't have a car. She doesn't own a car, and she took a bus to do her grocery shopping, and it started to rain, and her gross her laundry detergent leaked all over her food, and she got out, mm. and it was raining, and I and she said, but everything was clean, <laughs> and I thought, you know, if that were me, I would be so bitter and angry, but they're not. They're just. Uh, they cope, they show up with a smile, they appreciate a cup of tea. Um, And when I say they, I mean the patients that are struggling with mental illness and poverty and and the stigma and just walking into a room knowing that you make people uncomfortable. I've never experienced that. The world is a friendly place in my in my life, you know? But think about being and so beaten down. It, It makes me so sad. It makes me angry. You included in your article a wonderful testimonial um, by a woman that you've worked with who talked about her own food security, um, which you might want to talk about. But what touched me at the very end of what she said was, you'd be surprised how wonderful a cup of coffee is for someone, you know? And, And we're so 
cavalier about that. I mean, it, Serena, she's such an eye opener. She really knows how because she's she's lived. You know, you saw how she's lived and how she's recovered and now counsels other people. And she is really uh, so inspiring to me. But she, she's, she'll say things like repetition. You may get tired of saying things, but it's very important with this population that you have to repeat things over and over and over again. And I wouldn't have known that. And these are the things that the medical trainees and professionals need to hear is that, you know, we're like you said, we're really good with acute care, but it's very important to pay attention. If someone's missing a lot of appointments, appointments, instead of getting mad at them, which I have seen caseworkers do, they get angry. Well, he's not showing up. Why isn't he showing up? He may not be housed. He may not oh. have a phone to confirm. He may, things may be so bad that this might be just everything it takes to get to a doctor appointment or a nutrition appointment. You have to look at, every person is a story. Every, every person is a story. So to kind of wrap up, um, Food and water and Catholic health care. And again, the, the term we don't like to use, social determinants of health, but I want to go around for the three of you. And if you know, a lot of our listeners are working in Catholic health care, uh, how important are these two fundamental you know, building blocks of life, so to speak? I and mean, again, we cannot have any sense of health and wellness if we don't have adequate food and if we don't have you know, access to clean, safe water. What do we need to do to be more aware of that and to make sure that the support systems in the communities we serve, you know, advocating for if, I know there's a lot of communities, Flint, Michigan comes to mind, but there's communities across the country where the water supply is in danger because of, of toxins and what have you. Do, does Catholic healthcare need to speak up on that? And with our own patients, what do we need to do to make sure that we're uh, in tune with their needs and advocates for these two basic elements? I think we have to um, continually um, be in check with connecting with our own humanity. So the social determinants and the social context that is really a layer, um, um, we need to be looking at that. We have to peel off the layers. So the patient that you mentioned that, that's coming in has a background and has a story and has a place in which they live. So you can't divorce human suffering and the context um, of where people are uh, from their healthcare reality. Uh, we can't live in a, in a, in a facility wall. Uh, that really uh, social determinants push us outside of that facility wall for a reason. So that's a good thing. Um, I, I often think of an example of a homeless person uh, asking for food in the street. Mm -hmm. We tend to, our first impulse is with the heart to want to help, and then we sort of start thinking, well, if I help and if I get involved, and sort of your brain kicks in to try to sort of size up the issue and reasons why this is dangerous, and the fear comes in, and all these dimensions come in. But, but really, helping and, and getting involved might be as simple as looking at your fellow human being and acknowledging their existence. So I think in healthcare it can be very acute and complex. It can be um, um, different complexities depending on where we are in healthcare. But again, if we, we have to go back to our own uh, connectedness of our own humanity and our impulse to help and to actually act on uh, human suffering when we see it. I, I respond to both of your articles in this particular issue because they they ended hopefully 
um, with acknowledgement of a multi-level kind of response. But <clears throat> I love the, the the kind of, I'm going to use the word again, sacramental examples you used of the chaplain who told you the, the story about um, the person bringing the tray and offering the tray to, to take the person's tray to the table. And, you know, I, I think that the statistics around food and water are sometimes so overwhelming. This is where the faith community has something to bring where um, we can we can bring a sense of gratitude, reverence, and confidence that that this planet is 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 a, a gift, and we are a gift, and we if we've got work to do and a life to live, I'll, I'll end with just this uh, quick uh, experience I had in San Diego in La Jolla, which is an upscale a neighborhood. I was there with a friend about three years ago. We went to a, a Mexican taco place. And he said, you need to come here. And we, we went and it was just jammed full of people. The music was just blaring. <laughs> and we, we ordered our food and we made our way. And I saw two women, uh, middle-aged women, at a little table and their heads were bowed. And everybody else was, of course, the music was just jamming food and reading food. And I, after I sat down, I got up and I said, were you praying? They weren't saying anything. Their heads were bowed. I said, were you praying? And both of them said, yes. And I said, are you nuns? <laughs> and they said to me, no. And I said, well, thank you. But that, that moment will rivet for me. So, you know, to me, what I bring to the table here is that whatever actions uh, that, that we, we need to be able to, to respond with, there needs to be uh, a sensibility, uh, a, a reverence, a, a confidence and gratitude about what we have been given. I think both you as writers were able to express that very, very beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think it's, it's for me, it's a calling, and I know I could have done a different route, <laughs> but um, when you know when you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, and I feel mm. that way, and it's a tough patient population. It's I, I, it stays with me when I go home sometimes, but I know that I'm doing it because this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, and that, and we're all, I think, here living our best life. Marianne, final words. Final words, boy. That's <laughs> put you scary. on the spot. Well, you um, know, you're the editor. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that means I quietly sit in the corner and edit. Um, I'm so grateful for these and the other authors in this issue. I think that um, they were able to teach me, but I think our our readers that this is an issue that that does it all. You know, it's like it's sacramental, as John said. It's crucial, as Francine said. It's about the world community, as Camille said. And I think that, um, you know, whatever vocabulary we use, and I don't mean to poo-poo those terms very much, but I think that whatever vocabulary we use or from whatever track we come to it, um, our reverence for these elements and our reason to be in community about what we do next about them is really important. And it was a, it was a good lesson for me. Yeah, really great articles. Your three articles were wonderful, and we had other authors. Um, I would definitely recommend anybody listening to check it out. It's You can um, read the articles in PDF format online at uh, www.chausa.org. Uh, just click on the health progress. That's the current issue. That's the March-April issue. 
definitely worth checking out. You think, well, food and water, what, what could be told about that? But there really are some great insights. Uh, thank you all, John, thank Francine, you. Camille. Thank you for being thank here, you. for coming to St. Louis. Thank you, Brian. Thank you to Clayton Very Studios for all your good work in, in getting us together and making this sound good. I'm Brian Rudin, and for my host, Marianne Steiner, this has been another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. Until next time, we'll talk to you.